Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. Couple quick announcements. First, if you've got a second, please review the podcast wherever you listen. This really helps us out. Second, the folks at respondent.io have offered listeners in the Slack group a $250 recruiting credit. So if you're interested, go to the pinned messages in the Slack channel for more information. Uh, And remember, if you haven't joined the Slack group, you can by going to mixed-methods.org and you'll find a request for invitation under the community tab. Here's this week's episode. Everybody's very good and very happy to share what they do, but there's no one place that's allowing people to make sense out of what everybody learned. You probably already know my guest today. Tomer Sharon has been doing UX research for more than 15 years. He's written two books and a couple years ago decided to leave Google to lead the UX team at WeWork a co-working startup turned unicorn that's valued at close to $20 billion these days. We got together after I heard that Tomer was talking about the death of the research report, the inability of classic reports to effectively convey meaning and meet the needs of product teams seems to be a reoccurring theme. I wanted to hear how Tomer and his team at WeWork had rethought the paradigm and I was not disappointed. This is Ariel Sionflon and you are listening to Mixed Methods. This week's episode, Share Better, Rethinking the Research Report. I would just love to kind of start the conversation today by talking about what is, you know, a basic philosophy of the system that you're setting up at WeWork. So it's it's coming from multiple um, bad experiences that I had in the past. It's been, it's been kind of boiling for years now. And I, I have been doing what I'm doing for, I don't know, too long, <laughs> uh, more than 15 years. So in, in all the organizations that I worked for, there were always these problems. So um, bad research memory. Uh, and what I'm going to describe now uh, is going to sound very familiar to people who are researchers or doing research in an organization where there's more than one of them. So a researcher sends an email once a day to all the other researchers asking, uh, does anyone do research about X? And then 10 people respond and say, yeah, uh, we actually did. Uh, Here's the report. Uh, 10 others uh, completely forgot that they did that four years ago, um, because, report, uh, well, I'm going to talk about reports soon, but they completely forgot and did not respond. By the end of the day, uh, that researcher, um, being a good person, summarizes all the responses that he got and shares with the group, and then decides to do the study that he, he or she is planning anyway. Um, and then comes the problem of reports. Uh, people write reports. And the problem with reports is that uh, they are not uh, what I call the atomic unit of a research insight. Um, if, if, if you did research before, you know that you always start any research activity with a set of questions that you want to get answers to. And typically, you get answers to those questions. And even more typically, you find, you get answers to questions you didn't think about, 
and you find a lot of, you uncover a lot of information um, outside of the scope of what you've started with. And then what happens in reports or with researchers is that they either choose to focus the report on what they started with or they do that and also add uh, what other things they learned uh, during the study. But the report has the title of, this is a research study about X, but it also has information about Y and Z and A, B, C and D and so on. Mm-hmm. And what happens with uh, these reports after a few months, a few years, is that nobody considers them as reports for Y and Z and A, B, C and D. They're reports for X. So the bad research memory. People completely forget about what happened. Research also happens in silos, especially in bigger organizations. Marketing is doing focus groups and surveys, and the call center is not doing research, but they generate a monthly report maybe with the top 10 uh, topics that they're being asked about. Uh, Researchers are doing all kinds of research. Product managers are interviewing users and so on and so forth. Everybody's very good and very happy to share what they do, but there's no one place um, that's allowing people to make sense out of uh, what everybody learned. Um, and when I, said, when I said that reports are not the atomic unit, they, there's no way for anyone, for example, to ask a question such as, what do we know about what our customers are doing related to, I don't know, whatever, video? Uh, if there was no specific research study about video, nobody would know. At the same time, there might be 12 reports that have some kind of a mention or insight about video. I imagine this sounds as familiar to you as it does to me. Just trying to remember the questions you've answered, let alone the answers, can be an overwhelming challenge. Has marketing done this already? Is there like a product manager who's asking this question? So yeah, I mean, I think that really... That really uh, does sound familiar to me. So how, what are you guys doing at WeWork to solve for that? So even before that, we also have a unique challenge with WeWork. So if you imagine, uh, let's imagine Tim Cook or Steve Jobs at the time. They could have said or could say today something like, bring me all of Apple's products, put them on the table in front of me. I want to touch them, feel them. I want to give you feedback. Uh, they can do that. We can't. Our, our product is uh, in buildings. Uh, sometimes they're really far away, uh, and it's not easy to visit them, and it's not easy to know each and every day what's happening. How is the product working? And our product is uh, complicated. It has a physical aspect. We design spaces. It has a digital aspect. We design, uh, let's call them systems and software to support what's happening in these buildings, uh, to support meaningful connections between our members. That's how we call our customers. And there's the human aspect, and, and, or what we call service design. We have our policies. We, uh, we have our, our people, our employees in the buildings that are um, in touch with our members. They are, they are also, uh, in a way, a part of our product. So it's really, really, really hard to understand what's happening. Uh, And that also led us to developing a system that we call Polaris. And uh, this system is replacing uh, reports. Um, Or I should say it's solving all of these problems (laughs) that I just described. Um, Wow. (laughs) 
I wish that I, yeah, I think the look on my face was just like shock <laughs> getting rid of all reports. That sounds, yeah, that yeah, sounds pretty revolutionary. Yeah. We don't really write reports. Um, and, uh, and this is, the, this is the way it goes. So, uh, first of all, we created a, uh, an atomic unit for a research insight. We call that unit, um, a nugget, a research nugget. And the nugget has three components. One is uh, an observation, something that we learned. Um, two is evidence. Uh, if research, does, if an observation doesn't have evidence, it does not exist. So um, if we can't show proof to what we observed, then there's no nugget. Technically, you can't submit a nugget without evidence. And evidence might be... Um, 30-second clip from an interview or uh, a screenshot of some screen or a, uh, an audio recording or um, a photo that somebody's taking, a screenshot of an email that somebody written down, so on and so forth. could be many things. Uh, but the key thing is that it's one specific small thing that you learn, you, the observer or the researcher, that you learn uh, attached with evidence for it, and the third component is uh, tags. This is really important. We created a, uh, this is actually how we started the whole thing. We created a taxonomy of how we tag nuggets, uh, and these include some kind of obvious demographics, so which country, city, uh, and so on this, this took place. Um, and more uh, WeWork specific things such as, you know, which building, uh, what type of membership that this person had, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, other things are more related to uh, the content of the observation. So there's a rating for uh, how uh, or what is what we call the experience vector. Is it a positive thing that is happening, a negative thing, or is it neutral? Uh, the magnitude of, of what they're what they're talking about there, uh, the frequency and so on and so forth. There are multiple tags for each and every nugget, and that allows us to create a library or database or whatever archive of those insights of those nuggets uh, that is searchable. The most important thing that we tag by is called we call it a prop. A prop is. We probably have, I don't know, hundreds of props. A prop at WeWork might be uh, a desk or a door or a person or a, uh, an app. could be many, many, many things. And then uh, people can search uh, based on what they're interested in. So, for example, to become a WeWork member, you can take a tour, a physical tour. You can tour one of the locations. Uh, one of our uh, team members is going to give you a tour, and during the tour, you'll learn a lot about WeWork, and, and they'll persuade you to become a member. So uh, imagine a, I don't know, the general manager for WeWork in Europe waking up in the morning. That person can do a search for bad tours in Amsterdam and then get results. And when they click search, what they get is coming in the form of a uh, playlist, like a YouTube playlist, and they can just sit back, relax, hit play, and either watch or listen to 
let's say, 12 people talking about bad tours in Amsterdam. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So uh, a couple more things about it. We see this as uh, allowing WeWork teams to do uh, three things. One is to prioritize their work. So if they're deciding, if they're futzing between, I don't know, two possible projects that they might be focused on, um, this can help them decide what's more important. Let's say you're searching for you know, bad tours in general uh, compared to, uh, I don't know, the use of video at WeWork, I don't know, whatever. Um, so you can see based on first the size of, of those playlists. So you might get, for bad tours, you might get two nuggets and for use of video, you might get 73 nuggets. You'll see that there's a lot more meat into uh, video. And then if you watch all these videos, if, if, if they're video, uh, you'll understand the magnitude of the problem, if it's a problem or whatever, whatever it is, and you, you'll, you'll be able to prioritize your work. Uh, two, it allows you or, or allows teams to uh, educate themselves. Let's say we, we, we know where we live. We know that not all teams uh, pick what to do based on Polaris. So if they already picked what to do, uh, Polaris can educate them about uh, what they're doing. Um, we might have feedback related to what they're doing already. Um, and three, if there's a chance, it's mostly unlikely, but if there's a chance that a team doesn't have anything to do, then this can also help uh, pick projects. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see what you're saying in terms of, okay, we're considering, you know, between these five things or whatever, which one should we be working on? And just even seeing the numbers, like you were saying, would be so compelling in making that decision. Um, I think it's such an interesting way to approach the problem of UX research. I'm My first question in hearing you describe it is, you know, how does that work in terms of logistically, like, let's say you run five interviews, mm -hmm. you know, like looking at tours, right? Talking to customers who have just gone through a tour. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with, who knows, I don't know, two and a half to five hours of interviews. And there's all of these different nuggets in those interviews. It seems like it would take just so much time to, you know, edit each nugget and then tag each nugget. Like how does that process work? You get better in time. <laughs> but, uh, um, Seriously, it's it's not too bad. It's not too bad, uh, and uh, we also created a a very nice kind of a, a mechanism to add nuggets. So you don't really need to edit anything. You just watch. If if you uh, develop your technique during the interview, if it's an interview, so you just write down the time when something interesting is happening. Then you know where to go to. You don't have to watch the entire video again and again. Um, so if you do that, um, you don't really edit. What you do in our kind of uh, mechanism for, for adding a nugget, you just set, you know, you have the entire uh, video in front of you. Let's say it's a 30-minute interview. So you just need to say, okay, for this nugget, evidence is from uh, this point to that point, and that's it. Uh, you don't really edit anything. The system does it for you and kind of uh, grabs the, 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 the footage uh, into the nugget. So, um, so it's not too bad. I would say that maybe for every half-hour interview, it's 
about maybe an hour, not more, to uh, quote-unquote nuggetize. It's <laughs> a cool verb. Yeah, we um, have our own uh, kind of culture around nuggets. Uh, last week, we celebrated 5,000 nuggets in, in our library. So uh, we celebrated with a uh, with, uh, uh, chicken nugget lunch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really funny. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, first of all, huh, like that's such an interesting and it's so new, right? Like I, I've never heard of anyone using a system like that. So if nothing else, it's, it's just, you know, it's so fun to kind of hear about people doing new things to kind of solve some of these old problems. One of, you know, something that comes to mind, especially after reading your book, is in the book you talk so much about how, you know, getting stakeholder buy-in for UX research is so much about making the research theirs mm -hmm. as much as it is yours as a researcher. And I wonder, like, you know, with this new system, are you still inviting PMs, you know, product managers, designers, developers to observe, and then you're also doing this nugget system, or is it, you know, you guys are doing this and then everyone is using the nuggets as a resource? Like, how does that, how does that work? Everything you described is happening and more. I mean, it depends on the person and the team. Um, we could do interviews on our own and they're just consuming it. We could do interviews as, you know, when they, they are observing. Uh, we do even more than that. We train teams to interview and they and nuggetize, so they do all of that on their own. We just had a team that we trained at 500 nuggets following a study that they did. Um, so everything is happening. I mean, it depends on... Uh, I, I do some kind of uh, barter deals with teams. If a certain team wants to get training on how to interview, I say, fine, no problem, we'll train you. But also train you on nuggetizing and ask that you nuggetize. So um, most teams agree to that. So uh, everybody's winning. So uh, everybody's involved. That said, there are people who would never do that, as in, in you know any other organization and system. Some people would just you know not do it. <laughs> so uh, and it's perfectly fine. We we uh, we're perfectly fine with people only consuming the nuggets and not you know. Uh, adding them or uh, kind of being being present when we collect them, it's fine. Yeah, have you you know so you have this new system? Um, how have people been responding in terms of consuming it? Like, have you guys heard back from the company like about people who are just consuming the nuggets and then acting on that knowledge? And you know what I mean? Like, what is what has kind of been the the outcomes there for teams that aren't actually observing live, but they're just going into this system that you've created? Yeah, we, we have seen multiple behaviors. We've seen teams, we've seen people that just watch it because it's interesting for them. So for example, we've seen multiple kind of teams in our buildings, our employees in the buildings, watching all the nuggets related to their building. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, 200 videos from, from a building. They just, we, we've seen people watch that on one day. <laughs> and... Um, and other teams are actually very proactive and, and uh, a lot of teams are educating themselves and making decisions based on what they see. And other teams are, are truly making product decisions based on uh, playlists that they create. Um, there's another, um, one other thing that we created there, there are kind of our, our curated lists, uh, playlists 
So if it's research that we do, uh, we sometimes create lists, uh, playlists based on that research and then share it with different teams that we see as relevant. Um, I'm thinking about an example and I have something in mind but I can't really share all the details but uh, we went to do field, uh, field work in a certain, uh, let's say, Asian country uh, uh, that we're not, uh, that, that does not have a WeWork location yet. And um, everything we found and learned there um, was related to, or most of the things were related to kind of the physical aspect. So it would affect the architects and interior designers that design for uh, buildings in these in this country when it happens and uh, we added it to uh, Polaris we created videos and, and added everything to Polaris and we learned um, in the past two weeks that um, we work has decided to go into that country and uh, and now the team is is using our videos uh, for their you know to influence their designs so uh, we're very happy with it we're not satisfied yet uh, and we actually started kind of a, an internal project for uh, how to better communicate uh, and, and kind of promote Polaris usage and we work. So we have a long way to go still. Yeah, I, I mean, I think everything you're saying is true in terms of just the difficulty in, in terms of communicating with so many different teams, so many different departments. And also, even if you are communicating, even if you're on the same page, like finding that like 10 second clip or that 30 second, you know, whatever that's most relevant to them, it's just such a, a challenge, which is why this is such an interesting concept. Um, and I'm thinking back again to your book and, you know, you just you talk so much about observations and getting people involved in observations. And, you know, you had uh, field Fridays and all of these different ways to get people really engaged in the research process. And I wonder now in your position, you know, at WeWork and with Polaris, like what are the types of engagement that you're trying to drive amongst the organization? So, uh, yeah, field Fridays, uh, brings back a smile. Um, <laughs> how do we engage uh, people? I mean, it kind of depends on how mature people are in terms of research. Some people, it comes to them as, you know, they very naturally. They don't, uh, when I say people, I mean stakeholders. They don't understand how they can live without it. So that's kind of easy for us. We just need to uh, uh, communicate with them on a higher level. Um, there are teams that, or there are people, it's not really teams, there are people who are um, uh, the complete opposite. They, you know, nothing that we'll do, Polaris, reports, whatever, um, dance on the rooftop with research findings, they don't care, they couldn't care less about any of that. Uh, <laughs> they're almost hopeless, almost. And most people are somewhere in between. Um, so we try and find out, you know, what, what, kind of what makes them tick? What is, what is the thing that would make them respond well? Um, so I noticed that some person that I'm working with, um, I need to print out things. Or if I want them to watch a video, I need to come to them and play the video for them. No problem. Some people, um, I, you know, it's enough that I mention Polaris and they go there. 
uh, with some people, um, it's clear to us that we need to do the search in Polaris for them and then just send them a link to the playlist. Uh, that's another capability in, in, in Polaris that's really nice and, and useful for people. And by useful, I mean people actually use it. So, yeah, I mean, there are always going to be different people and different levels of, of maturity towards research. And uh, we have to be aware of that and, uh, and willing to find you know, the right way for each type of person. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, hearing you talk about playlists and sharing playlists, you know, it sounds like this really cool, uh, you know, iTunes store or something for research. Yeah. How, yeah, how did you implement that? How could other people implement something similar in their organization if, you know, they're listening right now and thinking like I am, wow, this sounds so cool. Yeah, that's the one question that people, if there's one question that people ask me and a lot of people ask that, it's, um, is it available for others? Uh, or when is it going to be commercialized and things like that? Um, so my, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that we didn't really think about it as a product for others. It was, you know, for solving um, what we saw as, as, you know, as a problem here and, uh, and we wanted to solve it for WeWork. Uh, and we were definitely not sure that this would solve the problem, um, so we didn't think of it as a as a you know as a product that will commercialize or make you know make it available for others. Or people ask me if we're going to open source it and so on and so forth. Um, so my answer, my fir the first part of my answer is that the second part is that anyone can do it relatively easily. You don't have we. We, we had it, you know, kind of developed and homegrown, but we started with a simple uh, Airtable. I don't know if it's a product people are aware of. Uh, Airtable.com is uh, kind of a smart and easy database. Database is too scary. It's a kind of an online Excel, I don't know, something like that. It's really useful for us. I think the first 4,000 nuggets were created on, on Airtable. Uh, so you can pretty much create all of Polaris there. It's just that it doesn't have the, the beautiful interface that we created up on top of it. But you can do that today. And Airtable asked us to create a template for that and include and publish that template uh, on their website. So, uh, and I can share that link. So we created a template for uh, your own Polaris uh, that you can you can create uh, by using that. So that's something anyone can do today. Yeah, definitely. We can include a link yeah. for sure. I wonder if kind of your approach to research, how has that changed over the past five years or how you view the role of the researcher? Because, you know, like you said, the, the book that I'm referencing is a bit older. And yep. in that book, you know, one thing that kind of stood out to me was you specifically said, I don't look for glory and recognition. Right. And you were, you know, you were kind of, um, you were also talking about how you should purposefully recognize people who get involved with research and, you know, champion research. And so it felt kind of like this humble, uh, this very humble approach. And I was wondering, you know, now, five years later, how do you see the role of the researcher? And, how, you know, has that changed? Um. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer by describing what I'm looking for in the researchers that I hire to my group. So currently we only have one researcher. And I'm saying that, and I'm going to say that 
that said, everyone in the group is doing research, not just the researcher. But the researcher that we have, uh, and I'm happy to mention her name, Michelle Merritt, she is probably the most experienced person in the group. She has, I think, 15 years of experience doing research in many places. So I was looking for somebody, and Michelle is exactly that, not only knows how to do research, but is also uh, extremely passionate about mentoring others and facilitate research that others do. Um, so between you and I, I think, uh, maybe it's in the book, maybe not, I can't remember, about 80% of what researchers do, anyone can do, given the you know proper training, and proper training doesn't have to be a uh, master's degree. Uh, there is a 20% that requires a lot of knowledge and experience, and that's fine, and that's what Michelle focuses on. But um, with the rest of the research, uh, she helps others uh, do their own research. Um, and I see that as the role of our group uh, when it comes to working with other groups. Uh, if there's a group that's interested in doing its own research, we will support them. Uh, it's not, you know, on our kind of uh, mandate, it's not our job to do all of that, but if I see a group or people that are interested in doing their own research, uh, I'd be the first to help them. So we help them with, with all the, the boring things that are always a bottleneck. So, for example, finding participants for research. Even if you're really passionate about doing research, you're not thinking about that and it's really hard sometimes. Finding a, a way to give incentives, paying participants, that's sometimes ignored or, or, or is really hard to do. So we do that for them. So we find ways to make it easy for others to do research, train others to do research in return for nuggetizing. But um, I think that's how I see the role of researchers. I don't know if it's changed or not. I think good researchers always did that. But yeah, the book is old, but I don't think a lot has changed. Uh, these are all techniques for uh, making people feel that research is theirs rather than the researchers feel it's, it's their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how do you guys go about facilitating that then? I mean, do you have like workshops, trainings? Do you have people who, um, you know, just recruit all the time or maybe it's Michelle? Yeah, like how do you how do you kind of make that happen for these people who are interested in it? Michelle doesn't recruit. We have a, we have a participant recruiter, um, but yeah, it's, it's exactly that. Um, we we, uh, we we have workshops. We have uh, researcher uh, kind of weekly meetup where we discuss research related topics, and people know that we're always here to you know support them with either from, you know, answering a simple question to helping them uh, launch a study in wherever, not here, far away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about the most complicated thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing that I always think about when I hear kind of more distributed models, like what you're talking about, where, you know, you, you basically are engaging with the whole organization to kind of up-level the research knowledge that exists. And one thing that I wonder is, you know, obviously something that's so important to maintain, like, the confidence and validity of research done is having a certain, uh, like, level of quality. And I wonder how you how you kind of ensure that that level of quality as you 
you know, distribute the research being done to all of these different groups across the, the organization? So, uh, interesting question. Um, I, I always find myself arguing with others about what I'm about to say. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to hear it. Bottom line is that I don't really care about quality as long as research is happening. Um, I prefer that unqualified, quote unquote, unqualified people without edu proper education about how to do proper research are going to do relatively bad research uh, compared to only researchers doing research that's ignored. Um, so I'm, I'm perfectly fine with uh, kind of cutting corners. Uh, I'll do everything to educate people on how to do proper research, but I'm perfectly fine with people not doing extremely high quality research. And this is actually the topic of, not the topic, the kind of the approach that I took with my uh, recent book, which is for people who don't know how to do research, for people who are not researchers, for people who are not or never going to be researchers, but they still have a legitimate question that can benefit from, from a simple research activity. Um, so I'm perfectly fine and I'm, I very intentionally created or described methods in the book uh, that are cutting corners, that are not perfect, but can be done quickly by people who want to do it on their own, um, but just want to do it and don't want to pay $50,000 for that or, or hire a researcher. Are there any like specific examples or like experiences that you had where, you know, that kind of, cause like you said, I think probably a lot of people would push back on that. Yep. Um, so I'm wondering, yeah, like what is it in your experience? You know, you said researchers doing research that's just totally ignored. So I'm sure that plays into it, but you know, is there kind of like a, a moment in your career or something where that switched for you? Uh, researchers like to, uh, I mean, and I was, I, I was a researcher for many years. I mean, Researchers really like to do proper research. Researchers really like to do research that sometimes take a lot of time. Researchers, I don't know if they like it, but they write long, long reports. And all of this doesn't really work for many teams that we're working with. Um, and, and I'm not even talking about people who are, don't have access to researchers. So they're not allowed to do research. They can only do research if they're willing to pay $50,000 for a a usability test being done by an agency, I don't think it's fair. If there are people who are willing to pay for that, fine, no problem. But um, usability testing is a perfect example. It's not rocket science. Almost every person after three hours can do a relatively good uh, user te usability test. But I don't even encourage, in the book specifically, I don't even encourage people to do in-person usability testing. I'm encouraging them to do it uh, remotely. Um, because then, uh, remotely, I mean, with services such as, uh, I don't know, user testing or user zoom or things like that, that, um, do not allow you, the person who's doing the research to interact directly with the participant because you're probably bad at it. So cutting the corner, you're not doing that. You're doing it only remotely and in an asynchronized way, uh, which is probably not the best way to go, but it's something that you can do very quickly on your own. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And I know so, I, I know a lot of people disagree with me on that, and it's fine. We don't have to agree. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess as long as you're okay with being the odd man out. Um, I'm not alone not. with this, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, and I think that totally makes sense. And I think a lot, I think a lot of people have a view similar to yours in that they're, you know, they're not just thinking about how to do more research or do better research in their organization, but they're also thinking constantly about how to empower other people to get engaged in the process mm -hmm. because so much of it is accessible, you know, if people just have an interest and are willing to, you know, put a little bit of effort into it. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a great thing to call out. Um, so, you know, we're kind of getting like closer to the end of the time, but I, I'm interested, you know, you've had such a long career, all of these interesting companies and different experiences. And I'm wondering, you know, now what is kind of like your, your thought around, you know, how as a researcher you can uh, bring the most value to your stakeholder? Like if you had it, somebody who was newer or something like that, how would you express to them, you know, like as a researcher, here is the way that you can really, really affect your organization in a positive way? I think you mentioned it earlier. Uh, humility is a really important part of it. I would say that the first realization that a researcher should have is that in terms of product development, the sun is not shining from the research or user experience behind. It may not shine from solely from other people behind, but uh, there are multiple important and critical considerations when companies and organizations develop uh, products and services. Research findings and human needs, as important as they are, sometimes they're not the most important things. As soon as you as a researcher can realize that and acknowledge that, it, you know, the better you'll be positioned to, to succeed. And uh, yeah, that's, I think that's uh, the most important thing. Thanks so much for listening. For those of you who want to try out what you just heard for yourselves, check out the episode page where you'll find the Airtable link Tomer shared. If you haven't already, join us for more UX research conversation in the Slack group. You can request an invite under the community tab on our website mixed-methods.org. Thanks to Laura Levitt who creates original graphics for each episode. You can see them under the episodes tab on the website or by following us on Twitter. See you next time.